there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. For me, it's always about being inspired, about um, listening to what's going on, to being inspired by a whole swell of different writers that we have. I think it's fantastic. There's also, it's so important hearing diverse voices and ensuring that our First Nations voices are front and centre. I think it's so important and I want to say congratulations to everyone involved in the Feminist Writers Festival because you've got such a rich array of voices, black, white and brindle as they say. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Feminist Writers Festival, Sydney, 2018. Supported by Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales and produced by Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is Writing and Speaking Indigenous Lives. This is a recording from the Feminist Writers Festival, 2018, Sydney. We'd like to acknowledge that the festival was held on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to thank our partner, the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. Enjoy the podcast and connect with us on social media or via the FWF website, feministwritersfestival.com. My name's Christy Clark and I'm co-founder of the Feminist Writers Festival. Thank you for coming along this morning to our session, Writing and Speaking Indigenous Lives. Um, now, I'd like to, to ask you to um, join me in welcoming our speakers. Um, on my far side, I have Brooke Bonney, who's a Gamilaroi Gomoroi woman and Triple Day's breakfast news presenter and resident news know-it-all. <laughs> She's been working as a journalist since 2010, has travelled around the world with the Prime Minister, reported on Eurovision, <laughs> um, covered two election campaigns and written a lot about what it's like to be an Aboriginal person in Australia. Please welcome Brooke. Uh, next to Brooke, I have Laura Murphy-Oates, a 27-year-old Ninyampa Walwan woman working as a presenter and producer for the daily current affairs show The Feed on SBS Viceland. She's reported on Indigenous affairs for the past six years and is the current Walkley Young Journalist of the Year. Please join me in welcoming Woo. Laura. Nadi Simpson is a Yuwalurai writer, performer and educator from the Northwest River Country of New South Wales, and she's closest to me. A founding member of Indigenous duo Stiff Gins, she is the current recipient of the State Library of Queensland's Black and Right Fellowship, where she's finalising her first novel, Song of the Crocodile. Please join me in welcoming. And between the two, last but not least, is Alison Whitaker, a Gomorrah Law scholar and poet. She's a research fellow at the Jambana Institute at UTS. Alison was a 2017-2018 Fulbright recipient at Harvard Law School, where she was named Dean Scholar in Race, Gender and Criminal Law. Her second book, Black Work, was released in September 2018. Please join me in welcoming Alison. Thank you. I'd also like to pay my respects to the Gadigal people and their elders past and present. Um, it's just such an incredible honour to be able to live and work on Gadigal country. I'm a Gamilaroi woman, so my family's from northern New South Wales. 
Um, and I always think about like what the land would have been like, you know, before colonization and, and what people would have been doing. And I, you know, sometimes think about that when I'm over in Bondi and think about how bloody lucky we are to all be here and, and um, have the privilege of being on this land. It's pretty special. Um, so I'm going to start off with questions to each of the panelists, but if you've got questions, save them until the end and we'll go around and to intimate group. So it looks like we'll um, be able to get through quite a lot. Um, we're going to talk about what it means to be an Indigenous woman in the country, what it means to talk about being an Indigenous woman in this country, the conversations that we ourselves have and the difficulties that we have in having those conversations. So, I'm going to start with you, sis. Oh, dear. What does having an Indigenous voice mean when it comes to your work, when it comes to your reporting? So I'll just do a disclaimer because this is probably what I'm going to have to do quite a lot in that I'm a fraud. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> well, Someone I'm, call the police! Uh, in terms of being a writer, you know, I've, I've written a few things, uh, like articles and things like that, but I do work in television um, and I write for TV. So a lot of my, when I'm talking about writing, will be talking about working in television, basically. And I've, hopefully I'm not a fraud when it comes to being a feminist. I feel like, <laughs> like my feminist reading is like Roxanne Gay, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is a good starting point. That's good. But, yeah. um, having an Indigenous voice, I think that I'm still figuring that out quite a lot in my daily work, basically. I think when I started, I was too scared to write about my own opinions and to express my own experience, probably because I maybe thought that my experience wasn't valid. Being a light-skinned Koori woman, having a very traumatic and fractured family story, I was very hesitant to talk about that in any way, shape or form. And I didn't for quite a few years. It was my belief that I should be behind the camera. I was a video journalist and I would film other people's stories and I would learn and I would listen. And I still very much believe in that. But I think what I've found over the past couple of years talking a little bit more and only a little bit about uh, my family story and about being a young Indigenous woman and about my experiences going through media is that it has reverberated in a way that I never really expected um, and that people have come back to me and said, hey, you know, I'm a light-skinned Koori woman and I had that experience too and I feel that shame and, and guilt and doubt when I started out or when I'm doing this in my career. Um, I wrote an opinion piece uh, a year or so ago um, to coincide with this documentary that was coming out, Young and Black, where I was talking about going to the Logies and feeling like I didn't belong and feeling like a lot of the achievements that I had gotten were maybe in some way always being questioned as, oh, well, maybe you got this because you're Aboriginal. And it was this negative voice that was going on in my head all the time and actually speaking out about that and speaking about that experience in that article was incredibly liberating and I think when we start to push away some of that internalized racism that we have been foisted upon us when we grow up we can start talking about more positive experiences I think <laughs> as well and that's been really helpful for me. I read the article that you wrote um, about the Logies. Um, firstly, props to you for going to the Logies. That would have been <laughs> mad fun. <laughs> but also, I think that you're right. It is such a relatable thing to be a fair-skinned Aboriginal woman and to be sort of not well, 
not feel like you belong in sort of either world because you definitely don't feel white. Well, I don't. Mm. And then like people question your indigeneity because you're fair-skinned or you don't speak the same as, as other people or your experience isn't the same as other people. Is that something that you can relate to, Alison? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, especially trying to when we think about cultivating an Indigenous voice, there's a a temptation, I think, that the institutions that engage us think that we're going to be able to represent everybody. And as a result, they kind of um, really hold close to this authentic vision that they have of what Indigeneity is. And of course, you can never live up to that. And I think that's where a lot of the insecurity can come from. Like some of my earliest, when I was reading the questions that were sent out, one of my earliest memories of like when I realised I had an Indigenous voice was when I went to a school and in year seven, I was asked to do a Bible reading at an assembly, which like, shame job one. Two, I had a really emo haircut. So the first (laughs) bit of feedback they had was, you need to pull back your hair. And then the second bit of feedback they had was, you have to pronounce gone correctly, G-O-N-E. And in kind of like the indigenous and class dialect that I had, Gorn was pronounced Gorn. Gorn? Gorn. It's really deep in your throat. And this is kind of like a real high class kind of like Anglican school in Tamworth. And they could not have me saying Gorn. Gorn. So they were like, put it at the front of your mouth. And I was like, Gorn. 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 And I felt so ashamed in that moment. And what started from there, from like year seven to year 12, was me gradually losing that accent. It absolutely devastated me. And I still haven't got it back. People ask me if I'm from Canada. I have no idea where it came from. But I have this weird, yeah, butchered voice because, one, they want kind of like the performance of indigeneity, these institutions, but they don't actually ever want to see it. And so I feel a little bit of um, a growing sense of complicity as a fair-skinned person that I'm presenting a vision of Aboriginality that they're comfortable with. And I think my place here is now to be kind of like carving out a space to be um, someone who doesn't play into that respectability politic and also someone who's really focused on getting a diverse range of voices into the platforms that I'm invited to. Nadi, when you've been sort of booked for gigs or you show up to something and, you know, people have this idea or this expectation of, you know, what the stiff chins might look like or, you know what an Aboriginal person or an Aboriginal woman might look like or sound like. Have you ever had a situation where they've been confronted, you know, by uh, you rocking up and being like, yep, just like you, hey, you know? Yeah. Uh, we've had the gamut of you're not black enough, uh, you're a bit too black. And there's this thing with, um, you know, you can never... <laughs> I, I, I remember once... Um, Rhoda Roberts was telling us about Gurumul was performing in Germany and people walked out because he was playing guitar. And so I thought, well, if he's not black enough, then we're all stuffed, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So there is no way you can satisfy this thing. There's no way. (laughs) So you've got to ask yourself, who am I? And who am I going to be? Forget them. What version of me are they going to be privileged to see? And the good thing about being a black fella is we have several versions of ourselves that are not in conflict, perhaps are opposite, but they complement. And, you know, this whole thing of duality and all this other stuff, you know, we are, you know, I'm, I'm a freshwater woman, flat plains. I'm the opposite of Gadigal, but I am not that place if this doesn't exist. And I'm cool with that. And, and 
I think, as an artist or whatever, you see the thing that you perceive as a danger and you say, well, that is my friend because somehow that makes part of me. If that answers your question, we get booked a lot because people want an Indigenous act and our presence, regardless of what we look like, is what they're buying. Mm. Not the sound, not the sentiment, not the ideas. Um, And that's something that we've been trying to talk about. How do we combat that? How do we not be... um, How do we be who we are and not be of service in somebody else's vision? Uh, But this is probably a conversation that all artists have with with themselves during their career. You seem so forthright and so confident in approaching that. I guess that's, you know, that's obviously something that comes with experience. But how do you assert your voice and and find the right forum, um, you know, to make sure that you do maintain your own sort of personal and cultural integrity? It's been a long process for me, but I'm sort of uh, at the stage now and I think, uh, you know, the way that I'm thinking now is all the answers are in culture, yes, but for me, Ulleroy. So, you know, when we have questions about, you know, writing Indigenous lives, I always think, well, actually what I want to talk about is writing a Ulleroy life because all the answers for me are in the teachings and the country and the, the language and the people of where I am. And, I, you know, there's an interesting sort of yarn, I think, now. Uh, our society is in a place where... We are, you know, Ngimpa, Wawan, we are Gamilaroi, we are Gamoroi, we are Gamilaray, we are Yularoi, we are Yualaray. And as Aboriginal people, we're saying, actually, that's what Indigenous um, culture looks like to us. And it's a lot of different lingo and a lot of different countries. And you fellas are ready for that. We're not just black. We're not just Indigenous. We're not even First Nations. I am Yularoi. And that looks very different too the way that it would look like to the other, uh, to any other black fella. And that's good because that's what makes us as Australians different. Um, the answers for me and the strength of being who you are lie in, you know, my freshwater flat plains, Yularoi country. And if I'm true to that, then I'm doing the right thing. Alison, would you say you took that sort of approach when you were writing your book or, when, you know, when you were doing your study? What sort of, uh, how did you feel about your own sense of identity and integrity? Yeah, I mean, um, when I was doing the study, it was a bit of a different circumstance. So um, I was in the US for a year, got back in June. And while I was there, I met people who didn't even know what an Indigenous Australian was. Um, and so we had to go back to like the most basic stuff. So like, I let them call me Aborigine <laughs> because that was just what they understood. <laughs> and I was just like, step one, existing. All right, we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there. Um, and then, you yeah. needed a montage. I needed a montage. It was weird. So I was doing, um, I was doing a thesis on quite a solemn topic, which is deaths in custody. It clearly meant a lot to me. I was doing it because it had personal ramifications to my life and my family's life. And I was kind of meeting with this supervisor whose kind of expertise was in death penalty litigation. I was like, how am I going to sell this to her? And imagine trying to have to explain everything you know about deaths in custody to someone who has no idea that Indigenous people even exist in Australia, let alone trying to kind of like bridge the more awkward hurdle in the US of explaining why I look the way that I look. And so, yeah, it was, it was complicated. These are, I guess, um, things that in academia people talk about, this 
big stupid long word called like strategic essentialism where um, it's kind of like how these calls to pan-indigeneity, so expressing solidarity between ourselves develop because we needed some united front to get the numbers, to get people to understand us. So for me there's something very different about how I represent myself externally to get people on board and how we represent ourselves to one another, which is like true ways, like it's the proper way of doing it. Uh, and so walking that line can be very fine because you don't want to go so far into strategic essentialism to like, you know, this kind of complicated lie that has a purpose that you lose everything else that's important. Um, and in writing my book, um, I think I've kind of come to terms with both of my books having a majority white audience because that's just Australian publishing. It took me a long time to get there. But um, kind of like this internal, external representation, like in these books, there are in-jokes. There are bits of like kind of like shared knowledge that we have between ourselves that make them almost completely different books depending on who's reading it. And that's what's most exciting for me about the value of poetry is that it can kind of have this commercial front where like, you know, the Sydney Writers Festival crowd can kind of come up to you afterwards and be like, wow, I'm so touched by your hard, sad life. There's that Tamworth <laughs> Anglican accent. <laughs> there it is. Look out, slipping straight into it. Slipping straight in seamlessly. Um, yeah, so there's like the commercial aspect to that. You kind of get the weird literary prestige, but the most important thing is these conversations or when, you know, my first book was about being Indigenous and queer and I felt really consumed by the white gaze in that book. But the things I really cherish is when, you know, young queer Aboriginal mob come up to me and say, you know, this mattered, I saw myself here. And I saw those little secret things um, and I cherish them. It is a really powerful thing when someone can bring your experience to words in a way that you haven't read before or seen before or, you know, can't do for yourself. It makes you feel understood in a really, really special way. So that must have felt amazing. Um, I also think it's funny that you raise, like, our um, indigeneity in, like, an international context because sometimes when I travel overseas and I'm like, people are like, why are you so tanned? You know, I thought people in Australia were white. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm black in Australia. And they're like, you're not white? <laughs> Especially in, like, an African-American context. And they're like, you, you can't say that. And I'm like, no, I, I am. I'm black. And they're like, no, you're not. Get the fuck out. <laughs> That's so funny. Um... Laura, how have you asserted your voice in, in the work that you do? I mean, obviously not every single story that you do is about Indigenous affairs, but, you know, quite a lot of the topics that you've covered have been there. How, you know, how have you come, have you dealt with that? Maintaining your integrity and, and, you know, you still have to do something that's fits within the SBS framework and within the feed framework and yeah. all of that stuff. I think, you know, you have to... Realise the fact that when you're making TV that a lot of your audience is going to be a white audience in Australia. Even SBS, you know, we are a multicultural broadcaster but if you look at the demographics we have elderly white females. There's <laughs> a lot of our main watches of our shows. Um, so sometimes I do feel like I'm – you have to break things down just incredibly but I don't concede – you know, I'm using people's mobs. I'm not talking about, you know – Here's this Indigenous woman. Um, there are just little ways in which I'm kind of asserting um, things that we did at NITV, basically, where it's like, well, this is how we're going to structure this story and here is some kind of knowledge that um, is just assumed in this community that we maybe don't have to break down. But I think a lot of the stuff also maybe happens, 
you know, before we turn on a camera for TV in just the conversations that I'm having with Indigenous people around Australia, um, you know, there's this assumed knowledge that I think you need to have an Indigenous reporter about, you know, fear of institutions, fear of the police, fear of, you know, hospitals, um, intergenerational trauma and being an Indigenous reporter and talking to people about that, that's just one hurdle they don't have to deal with when they're, you know, talking to a non-Indigenous reporter. And it's a special thing. And I think a lot of that work in terms of um, getting someone's story to air, and a lot of the time I don't even have any voiceover in a story, like it's, it's really just trying to get someone's, get their platform there onto a national broadcaster, that's done behind the scenes in terms of culturally connecting with someone. So your voice really starts before you even, you know, turn on the beautiful... What do you, you guys have a lot of drone shots and atmospheric <laughs> yes, sounds at the feed. Very big fans <laughs> of that. But really your voice starts when you start doing an interview with someone and you can build trust with them very quickly and you have yeah. access that, you know, non-Indigenous people don't have. I think it's also the type of stories that you choose as well because there's such a tradition of choosing the same old tired stories about Indigenous people around Australia, taking a graduate... And I'm sure some of us have been written about in this way, like a success story against the odds or whatever, and assuming that it's against the odds in the first place. Like, I don't know, I had a pretty good childhood. Like, <laughs> my parents are amazing, loving public school teachers. Like, yeah, it's, it's not going the easy route and, and playing into those just tired cliches and tropes about Indigenous people. It's like, hey, here's a success story. They're successful because they're amazing. <laughs> Because they're a successful black woman and let's delve deeper into that. Like, let's, like, go complex into the ways in which they've, you know, formed and crafted their career and not go, like, oh, well done you. Like, it's – and it, it's – you'd be surprised at how often people just slip into those narratives when they're talking about Indigenous people. Yeah. Why do you think there is the tendency to, to slip into, into that sort of story? Do you think it's because the conversation around it is so – um, complex and so nuanced that it's almost too difficult for some people to grasp, Nadi? Yes, and I think we're champs at relationships. Blackfellas, we know how to relate to everything. We're taught that from day dot. And those conversations are very different. They're longer and slower and more complex and I think, um, you know... People don't have the time or the skills to facilitate a yarn like this, maybe. You know, a space has been made for a discussion in that very way. Um, but our world, you know, Twitter handles, it doesn't work like that. So I think the thing that we are wonderful at is relating, relatedness, connectedness. And the discussions for that need to look very different. Uh, Alison, how do you talk about these things that are very complex and very nuanced in a way that um, non-Indigenous people can can grasp? Or, you know, that's not to say grasp, I think that sounds a bit condescending, but in a, in a way that does your story justice but also sort of covers the background or, you know, makes people feel good about the situation that we're in when you need a feel-good story. Um, it's funny that you pull away from condescension because that's my strategy. <laughs> <laughs> that's your vibe. <laughs> like, you really do. Like, they are at 
101. You meet them at 101. And um, oh, this is going to make you sound like a real asshole. But um, I do that 101 stuff when it pays well because I think it is a really unique way that Indigenous people can bring in social capital and bring in income is doing that basic work that we're expected to do. Hey, shoes aren't going to buy themselves, sis. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Six bucks at Kmart. (laughs) Got that by patronising white people. (laughs) Um, But in in seriousness, it's really hard to engage people without compromising, uh, I guess, what, what we know to be true. Um, and it's even harder to do it as a writer without yourself becoming the product. So people like to talk about um, Indigenous success and the frame first of, like, Indigenous deficit or, like, our own suffering. Um, And I think, in in a way, it might be because, like, the idea of Indigenous excellence is threatening um, if it's not first met with kind of, like, this triumphant, story like they're threatened by the idea of indigenous independence indigenous sovereignty indigenous genius and it can be hard to present yourself in a way that earns their trust without first reassuring them that you don't think you're better than them and um that's a that's a really difficult pressure that i think i live with day to day not because i think that i'm better than them but because you know the slightest whiff of confidence makes you look conceited like uh, an example of this is um ali kobe ekerman won an incredible prestigious international poetry prize and all the headlines were about how she lived in a caravan and it made me so livid one because ali's a genius you once in a generation poetic mind fantastic execution of the form fantastic I guess connection to the subject matter and she was wiping the floor with Australian poetry and this was what they thought of her and we're not asking for reverence but we're asking for kind of like an equal engagement and that sometimes means being able to be separated from our work in a way that our personal story and our own lives don't kind of become what people buy when they pay $25 for a book Um, and so that's kind of why I think in the writing that I'm doing now, I'm trying to move away from representing myself for that reason, because I don't want to be owned or consumed in that way. Can I just quickly add to that? I think that's a really interesting point about when we're asked to be educators, that we're actually not practising, and that's a very different conversation. Um, I know when people ask me for things, they want me to give them an accessible point to Indigenous culture. But that's not me being a writer or singing a song. That's not me expressing uh, my own identity. It's, it's giving a service sort of thing. So th- and this is another one of those complexities that we... Um, what is it? We walk on a tightrope. One side is the education of people into understanding and accepting and interacting with Indigenous people. The other side is who we want to be and how. Uh, and we're forced to right, walk that little tightrope more often than not. I would say that kind of echoes with me a lot because I, as part of my job, I do a uh, explainer video every week um, on of a Wednesday. And it's about a two to three minute um, kind of graphics, sometimes skits, like a very silly thing if you've seen any of them sometimes, but sometimes very serious. 
And a lot of the time I'm breaking down, uh, I did one about frontier wars um, and one about the sunrise segment about Indigenous adoption. Um, and those pieces are, are very much pandering to a zero base knowledge. Like it's like, hey, here is why you, imagining you as like an eight-year-old or a 15-year-old listening to this or a 20-year-old or someone who's never met an Indigenous person should care about this and here's some basic facts and knowledge. And it is frustrating to speak in that way. But then I think about the power of the fact that I have a platform to do that once a week on a national broadcaster every week. And that for me is like choosing that subject in the first place. I, that for me is a power. Even if I can't express it in a way that feels like a true expression of Indigenous identity, it's like choosing a confronting bloody Indigenous topic and being like, here you go, learn about it. <laughs> learn yourself. Exactly. Well, that's it. Re- relearn everything you've been taught. I mean, we see with Bruce Pascoe. Yeah. The, the history that you learn about us and about you is wrong. Wipe it off and start listening. I feel like I've run out of steam when it comes to um, explaining things to people, like especially with the 101 stuff. When I was younger, I had so much fire in my belly and I'd be like, well, actually, you can't say half-cast and these are the reasons why. Or, you know, you can't ask me whether my mum or dad was Aboriginal or point out that obviously one of my parents was white because of these reasons. Or, you know, these are all of the things that we get asked like once a week at least. Um, Usually in a cab. I don't know, (laughs) like, why that's the case. But... um, I, I used to have so much patience and now I'm just like, oh, fuck, whatever. Like, I don't even pull people up when they say it now um, because I just can't be bothered. Maybe I should just download all of your videos <laughs> and just be like, <laughs> just hold it up. All right, you're done? You, you learned now? Okay, cool. And then sort of move on to the next thing. Um, One of the things that I've sort of grown incredibly frustrated about and I do talk a lot about now instead of the really sort of basic 101 rudimentary stuff is um, intersectionality in feminism. And I was thinking the other day because I met this incredible woman from Uganda just in an Uber pool. Um, It wasn't a negative experience though, it was lovely. And we were talking about HPV and how um, incredible it is that, you know, the vaccines in Australia have been so successful and in, you know, 15 years cervical cancer won't be a thing in Australia. And she was an OBGYN, she was here for a big conference and she was like, well, you know, it's horrible for us, like, you know, we don't have that. She lives in San Francisco now. But she was talking about how um, one of the barriers is that it's so expensive. And I was like, hey, well, maybe we could, like, uh, organise some fundraisers or like, you know, now that we've eradicated it, we could get Australian women to raise money for women in other countries to be able to get the vaccine and sort of like brainstorming ideas with her all on the way to Bondi from here. So we didn't have long, but it was more effective than half of the meetings that I'd had that week. So, <laughs> And then I got out of the cab, we exchanged details and I thought, geez, it's actually not that hard to think of women who are less privileged than you because quite often I'd find myself in situations where... I'd be frustrated at white feminists for ignoring Aboriginal women's rights. And I would just think, oh, you know, it's not always very easy, though, to consider other women, like to consider trans women or, you know, women with a disability or, you know, whatever, you know, people who are different to you. And I was like, actually, I just did it. It's not that fucking hard. (laughs) Um, What do you think about that? I 
have become a perpetual menace to any of my friends who run stuff. <laughs> um, basically, especially for out having a drink. And I'll just be like, so how many Indigenous people do you employ? Like, do you have a, a specific role at BuzzFeed for blah? Like, just I think that it's, it's kind of like I, I take it from a very cheeky perspective. I'm not going, shame on you for not creating space in your organisation yet that you've just started for uh, Indigenous women. Um, but I think that it's just a good practice for us to think about in our own lives all the time, in our own spaces in media, um, well, for me in media, but also to push everyone that we know to be basically making room for other people who are not like them, for Indigenous people in particular. Um, <laughs> I'm just telling any people who run media organisations when I meet them, like, so you're employing an Indigenous journalist soon, right? <laughs> it's just, that's, that's how I approach it. <laughs> you will employ an Indigenous journalist <laughs> Just shame them. Yeah. <laughs> Alison, what do you make of that? How do you, um, how do you think our issues should be considered in the broader feminism framework? Um, it's interesting that I guess this discussion talks about uh, like a thinking down in a way, like so uh, white women thinking about the disadvantages of like uh, being a woman of colour or being, you know, in a non-Western context or imperialism. Um, I think one of the keys to intersectional practice is actually thinking about the intersectionality of power. So thinking about whiteness more often is a really productive way, I think, to get people to think about their own position within power because I mean uh, white charity is a, a huge problem <laughs> in this country like there's a lot of philanthropic funding that's kind of like used in a way that they think is about kind of like lifting people up but is actually like putting new forms of coercive control on communities so it can sometimes be really tricky and then you also don't want to make them think about whiteness to the extent that they kind of become paralyzed by it or just like weird navel-gazing people who want to confess their privilege to you all the time because that sucks and it's so annoying. I know. Shut up rich. about your privilege. I know. I can see it. I know. Pass me your credit card. That's it. <laughs> all I want. Fine. My PayPal <laughs> details are there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, um, and I think uh, when I was in the U.S., I'm just going to like, in the US. Uh, I went to a lecture at a conference called Rebellious Lawyering by Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term intersectionality. And she was surrounded by this halo of people at all times uh, who were just kind of fawning over her. It was really a sight to behold. But uh, that sounds lovely, actually. It was so nice. It was really restorative to hear from her. She's um, uh, a genius who sees power for what it is, can articulate it, can see a path forward. Um, but never kind of thinks of it in a way that like kind of hovers above the reality that we experience. Anyway, so um, a lot of the time she's spent writing about intersectionality the past like five or so years has kind of been lamenting that it's been taken up in a really clumsy way and might have done more damage. So when people think intersectionality now, they think kind of about this like tool of diversity, which can be quite blunt. And so when I was at university and I was a uni student and people would tell kind of like the, oh, Alison's life was very sad, but now she got a scholarship and now it's no longer sad. The stories would just kind of list all the things <laughs> that I was. And it had this kind of like weird, I don't know, anthropological part to it. It's like, Alison's Aboriginal and poor 
and gay. Can you believe all of these things? She's a triple threat. found one. <laughs> and that was it for such a long time. Intersectionality is just this really annoying thing in my life where people would describe every quality that I had. Like my left boob was bigger than my right boob. And <laughs> it, it sucked. And intersectionality is more about how power differentials kind of like influence all these parts that make uh, and cruelly customize oppression for Indigenous women, for transgender women, for us all. Uh, and it, we can't lose sight of that, I think, in our writing. Nadi, what do you think about the, the help that we get from people from other groups, you know, when it comes to feminism or, you know, even from black men? Uh, I think, I suspect we're wired differently so that our black fella eyes and brain and way of moving is uh, not going to fit a cause that has been shaped by something very different. I don't think that... I think that there are really creative and innovative ways to meet, but like I said in the beginning, I think about what, what does Euleroy t- teach me? that I need to be as a woman and two other women. There's a big long yarn about that and at some point it's going to tell me what I need to be as a Euleroy woman to a Euleroy man. And those things are inextricably linked. So the answer to me being a strong black woman in a Euleroy context will have something to do with being generous and kind and strong, which are our sort of pillars of successful life. You flip that over, that's, that's for men and women. All need to be successful, uh, sorry, strong, kind and generous. So if you have a community where men and women are that way, then you're not in opposition in ways that you might be. Um, in a Western context, if I'm trying to, if I'm making any sense here, we think differently. We have language that tells us how to be a feminist, but it's not that word. Our country has things it needs us to do to be a strong black woman. That will involve relationships with children and men and other mobs and the opposite of who you are. So then we're thinking about a full circle and not just a pinpoint within that. And I think I haven't worked it out. This is my, this is how I'm going to live my life, working out these difficult things. Somehow to be strong black woman, I will need to be very mindful and take with me black men. That's, that's what, what I have to do. Uh, how that fits into a Western discourse about feminism, I don't know. <laughs> Someone else can work that one out. <laughs> do you get frustrated, though, when you hear um, conversations around women on boards or, um, you know, equal pay for equal work or 
you know, even when you hear about um, women taking to the streets and marching for, um, you know, uh, white women who were murdered or, or assaulted. But at the same time, when Aboriginal women die or are assaulted or are hospitalised at far greater rates, mm. you know, no one's taking to the street. There's no vigils for us. Yeah. Do you, how do you, how does that sort of um, inequality fit in with your, like, spiritual thinking? Do, do, you, does, do you feel like a sense of injustice in, in that? Totally. Let's yarn about colonisation before we have a yarn about feminism. How long is that yarn? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think, uh, uh, you know, look, what do I know? In my family and in my community, a lot of the difficult, traumatic things that are part of uh, the life of a black woman have descended directly from the history of colonisation. Go back to relationships. How do I feel when, you know, um, the poor little black woman is the, our, our yarn is the last one because we're the quietest. That's when we need our non indigenous sisters to step aside and pull people to the front. That's probably the best thing I can think of right now. It comes down to relationships. Um, how do we foster the relationships that we have within our communities with people who don't belong to that and don't, uh, don't assume a right to that but have a different version of that? Then we're practising a feminism without thinking and talking about it. There's much more, uh, I don't know, it's in your body, maybe. Okay. Alison, when you were studying law and, and studying, you know, deaths in custody and, you know, you see the difference in the way that black people or black women are treated or, you know, their deaths are investigated or, you know, people are charged and there's some sort of sense of justice around what's right and what's wrong. Um, how did you, I mean, how do you feel when you see conversations going on um, like some of the conversations that we hear, uh, you know, in, in sort of mainstream feminism, but knowing um, the way that black women are treated, you know, under the eyes of the law. Yeah, it can be really frustrating. So um, the tricky thing about deaths in custody is that everyone kind of presupposes that, like, someone would have been charged or gone to jail. Um, but So I looked at all the cases I could find. Uh, when I was researching it, between the end of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody in the 90s uh, to the present day. And I found there'd been more. There's about over 400 deaths in that period. I only found about, God, just under 200 cases, and I read them all. And very small representation of women in those cases, which I don't think would be the case anymore because Indigenous women are the fastest-growing incarcerated population in Australia, but only of those, like, a, a massive slew of deaths would fill this room easily. All those people gone, 
only two people were charged with anything and then both two. were off. Yes. One, two. Two. Out of the 200 cases that Just you Just under 200 cases and uh, both – one got off on a technicality that said you can't charge a cop with anything uh, more than two months after it happened. Seems like a horrible loophole. And uh, the other one was uh, – I don't know if I... Anyway, the other one was a, a death on Palm Island, which we are all familiar with. Um, so it can be really frustrating within that framework to, to highlight these um, kind of like tranche of deaths of Indigenous women, which are quite different in character, and say something's going on here. And I think if we change these things, we can change it for everybody else as well. So I guess um, kind of reflecting on what Nadi said, like decolonization is a feminist act. If we start centering Aboriginal women, we are going to address some of the fundamental problems that women are having in this country. Because in a, in a crude way of thinking about intersectionality, if you think about the bottom of the power hierarchy, here are the people who are feeling it most. And so if we take this suffering out, the rest will crumble down. Um, and kind of aside this conversation about what is state violence, I want people to start thinking about that as gendered violence in the same way they think about rape and domestic violence as gendered violence. Because it is very gendered, has a really strong character for indigenous women and how they suffer and how they die at the hands of the state. And on the other side is a much trickier conversation to have because current strategies that are coming out of absolutely like unquestionable human rights abuses and domestic violence in this country against women, and that includes white women who get more publicity for it. There are some of the reforms that are being led by these movements, because they're not adequately consultative of indigenous women, are leading to an expansion in incarceration and police contact that's doing indigenous women a lot of harm. And that's a very difficult conversation to have because there are things in which we have very clear alliances and there are some things that we need to be really, really cautious of. And I don't want that to be read, as sometimes these debates are, as Aboriginal women excuse violence against Aboriginal women. It's just that we don't want these two sources of violence that we are in a unique position where we have to deal with. When there's gendered violence against Aboriginal women, there are two huge systems involved, patriarchy and colonisation. We'll go to some questions in a moment. So if you've got something um, brewing, articulate now. Well, um, we go to Laura. Laura, do you want to reflect on that? Yeah, I think a lot of what you're saying uh, resonates with me, especially, you know, I did a documentary about violence against Indigenous women in Canada last year. And in that just read a lot of stuff to do with Indigenous women here and in Canada um, and why... The, the staggering rates of violence are even happening. And one of the women that I spoke to, Nahani Fontaine, um, in Winnipeg, kind of just elucidated it for me in a way that I had never really heard and I think about all the time. She said that, you know, when invasion happened in Canada, as in Australia, they saw these powerful Indigenous women uh, who were the heads of their societies and families and you have to break that down in some way if you want to take the land and you want to, you know, invade and become masters of this land. And the way of doing that is by denigrating Indigenous women and by propagating this idea that we are less than and that we deserve violence and that um, 
you know, that's something that's okay to do. And so there are all these narratives that you can see from, you know, settler notebooks and, and language and everything about Indigenous women as being promiscuous and about being, you know, in some way property of the settlers. And then I went to a perpetrator's course in, in, in Winnipeg where they were trying to reform violent men, um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And I asked them, what do you read about Indigenous women? What do you hear about Indigenous women um, in your everyday lives? And I was shocked to hear, like, the same language of, like, score and, you know, slut and, and, and this type of stuff, which literally had been started as a deliberate tactic hundreds of years ago. <laughs> and it, that narrative is so pervasive that it infiltrates the ways that Indigenous women are treated, whether people realise that they've inherited that narrative or not. Um, and so you have this very specific racialized and gendered language and violence that is passed down that, you know, maybe you're, it's in the minds of, of cops and, and people who are, you know, running powerful structures in Australia. And then on top of that, you have the inheritance that Indigenous women have gotten of intergenerational trauma so there's two things. It's playing out currently and it's inherited. And I think that's a really interesting way of looking at, you know, why we need to think about intersexual feminism and, and think about gender um, in a framework of colonisation and its impact on Indigenous women. I, um, as you were speaking then, I just sort of thought about all of the things that I'd heard my mum say, other people say about her. So my mum's 50, like she's pretty young. But um, two of the things that sort of stick out to me is that I remember my dad's family calling him a gin jockey for going out with my mum. And I remember my stepdad had said to my mum, oh, but black women like to be beaten, don't they? And she's 50. It's not like she's like, you know, 110 and this was happening like a long time ago. This is like what people think of us now. And where does that narrative come from is exactly. what we need to... And I think for some people it's too much of a leap to link that to colonisation. They're like, oh, come on. Like, that's unrelated. That's ages ago. But I literally saw the playing out of the same words and language. Over and over. Yeah. And people need to understand that. And if I can just add the truth is for many Aboriginal communities, especially out west, the women are the bosses. They're matriarchal societies. They controlled the fresh water. You had to ask them to drink. They, they are the giver and sustainer of life, which is actually our inheritance, not those, not that rubbish that's got in the way. Mm. So, you know... All that old stuff tells us. How do we, how do we as young people connect to that? Mm. How do we tell um, white feminists? How do, we, how do we bring back that, those discussions and that language about uh, inara, senior women and all that stuff? How, how do we do that? How do we reignite those things? They're doing it with language. Hey, language is going to become, is coming back in schools in New South Wales. They passed the bill. And the, the ground shifting. And so, you know, because of her we can. We can't forget that. It was only months ago. Because of her we can. And that's what happened with the song lines and with language. 
it was a NADOC theme and it bubbles up to the surface and you watch in the next few years. I believe that because we are the love of generations, eh? All those old women. We want to get back to that. And that's the, that's the version, the part of ourselves that we want people to listen to. We're going to go to some questions now from you guys. Um, who's first? Who wants to go? We've got a mic here. Oh, hello, Jenna. I didn't even see you sitting there. How have you been keeping quiet this whole time? <laughs> that is so mean. Because <laughs> I have been busy tweeting all your names, except Nadi don't have a Twitter handle, so I'm just spelling it out all the way through. Anyhow, um, with a whole bunch of women, we do a project called Counting Dead Women. It is almost impossible to get um, actual accurate information from the police who are... Um, policing remote communities Mm. and I feel like there's many Indigenous women who are killed who we can never honour because Mm. I can't, we can't get the information Mm. and this is pathetic coming, you know, as a beige feminist. We need help. I I don't know how to make this happen and I think we must make it happen because we can't have all these women dying hidden. Mm. You know, I was looking through the missing um, persons list for a project that I'm working on and... There are all of these black women who aren't thought of as murdered, who aren't thought of as, like, you know, having killed themselves or anything. They're just listed as missing. Like, they've just vanished into thin air. Uh, And it's so obvious that some of them have been murdered, you know, by partners or by, you know, some stranger or something. And, like, looking at the photos of their faces, and you're just like, how... How can we not, like, investigate this to the point where we can see that this woman has been murdered when it seems really obvious? Or uh, I was looking through them and, like, none of them had rewards for information. You know, you look at all of these other women who have got, like, a quarter of a million dollars or is on offer, $100,000 or is on offer. And for the black women, no one gives a shit, you know, like... The information's not there because no one cares enough to find it. Well, maybe not none of them. I don't want to be like absolutely conclusive about that, but may- there might have been like one or maybe two that I didn't see. But I would say also because I've looked into this before as well. Some of it. I 100% would say is police in action, but there is also issues with identifying women in some communities because um, I've tried to report on these cases when they come up. And, it, yeah, it, it's incredibly difficult. Um, a lot because of police in action and not following through and reporting properly. And, I mean, I think that's why you need journos going out to these bloody communities and keeping... Police accountable when Indigenous women, Indigenous people go missing in general, and you know we're seeing this now with some some reporting that's coming out that like you know we had a Four Corners on um, the lady in the Mid North Coast the other year, and that Lynette Daly, Lynette Daly, um, which created some action finally. You know some of Alan Clark's reporting lately has actually led to some police action on the cases. That's an enormous effort for single cases for that to get into the spotlight. That's there's way too many and way too few stories happening. 
So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I was even looking at the descriptions, you know, when they're like, oh, she was last seen, you know, getting into a car or, you know, this is what her memory is. And, like, the the white ones, like, they have these, like, beautiful descriptions of the sort of mother they were or, you know, the sort of person that they were or life that they led or whatever. And for the black people, it's like, she was 170 centimetres tall. She had dark skin. Like, be... There's no sort of humanity. It was so, it was so incredibly frustrating. Uh, my, I have two questions because I'm being really cheeky, but if anyone has another question, pull up your hand. So, um, my first is to Alison, but also to anyone else. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that kind of toxic intersection between the state violence against uh, Indigenous women mm-hmm. in terms of this rising incarceration rate and also the, you know, the increased rates of removal since the, the Stolen Generations and how that actually really intersects with um, that genuine um, fear of engaging the state in, in relation to other forms of violence that, that, that women might experience because coming into contact with the police, for example, by reporting domestic violence has led to the incarceration of a number of women, particularly in WA recently. I just wondered if you could expand on how that sort of come up in your research. Yeah, absolutely. So I haven't published anything on this yet. Um, But essentially um, state violence and uh, domestic and sexual violence against Aboriginal women are kind of mutual pathways to one another. So something, I can't remember the exact statistics, so please fact check this if you've got a computer, but um, something close to 90% of Aboriginal women in prison. What is it? 89. All right, perfect. Okay, 89% of Aboriginal women in prison have trauma relating to domestic, childhood sexual abuse or other sexual violence. That's immense, the kind of trauma that it creates and that links a pathway into someone being institutionalised as a form of punishment for what has effectively happened to them. And there are, there are also, um, I guess, like real ramifications for calling the police for Aboriginal women. Uh, their children can be taken away for them having an unsafe household. There are reforms on the table right now in New South Wales that starts a clock two years from the moment your child is taken away. So if you get something like for a common assault, if you're charged with common assault and you end up in uh, uh, a prison and you end up with a sentence that's like 18 months, you will never see your child again. The court will take them away and they'll be adopted out to another family under these reforms. So there are real consequences for calling the police. And there are tragic case studies in the example of the absolute worst in inhumanity that can happen to Aboriginal women when they call police for domestic violence. Uh, case in point being the death of Ms. Du in Western Australia. She called the police. Um, no, sorry, someone called the police to enforce a uh, AVO that was made out in her benefit. She was then pulled up on their system and they found that she had outstanding fines. And the law in Western Australia is that you can serve outstanding fines in custody. They took her into custody, didn't check her for injuries. Her injury got worse, grew septic, and she died over three days in absolute agony. So these two things are related. These are two forces that, uh, in, I guess, <laughs> um, no uncertain way, colluding to create maximum suffering for Indigenous women. Uh, and we need to pay a lot more attention to it, especially as we are pushing for, I think, what is unfairly called in the US carceral feminism, so 
starting to use prisons and police as the principal way of addressing gendered violence. But we need to be really critical of how we use them here because for Indigenous women, this is a matter of life and death. Extending another violent actor into their home uh, doesn't make things better. Thank you. Uh, you have a question. I might come back to my question if I have time, otherwise. Hi. Um, looking back at the history of the movement, and hearing your eloquence, all of you. And I'm thinking back to the Black Watch Committee that operated in the 1980s that was a precursor to the report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. I'm thinking of early books now, Dean, like We Are Bosses Ourselves. How much does this history of the last 30 years affect you? And how, what do you, how do you see yourselves in relation to it? You can take that one else. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I was going to say Nadi as well because we haven't heard from you for a little bit. If you want to have a go. How does it affect me? It is part of me. I am born of it, even though I might have been nine years old. <laughs> I am an inheritor. I am a link in the chain of the conversation. Uh, so then what do I need to do? <laughs> um... What is my responsibility within that? This is a, these blackfella questions. What's my role? How do I, how do I add to that? How do I, um, how do my actions? How do I make my actions of benefit to another nine-year-old? Uh, who's got the question? Who's got the answers to that? I think. How I come to it in my mind, I must walk. Um, I must walk with the knowledge that I'm following someone else and someone else is following me. How that plays out in my life, I don't know. But in that way, and I was very moved by that conversation about those forgotten women... How do I, I, they need love. They need, someone has to have the love of holding their memory. How do we do that? Aboriginal women are very busy keeping shit together. We may need help in holding the love and memory of those missing and murdered Aboriginal women from the sisterhood. I'm re I am a relation to all those things that you said. Uh, I need to. Now, what's the word? I'm going to finish right now and get the right word. I need to honour that. And their words and their actions will show me how. If I do that, then that little one can follow by the example that's been set, if that makes sense. Nadia, I feel like I could listen to you talk for, like, all day. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Just when I can't sleep, I've got insomnia. Yeah, <laughs> just, like, give Nadia a call and be like, can you please tell me a story? <laughs> I, um, I love that you said that because one of my favourite quotes from um, ever <laughs> is from Maya Angelou. And she says that, um, you know, your crown has already been paid for by the people who came before you. 
And that's so beautiful because then, it, you know, you kind of realise that every room that you sit in or every path that you walk or, you know, every, every time you have to go and do something that you have a right to be there because, you know, the people who have come before us have worked very, very hard to put us there. Um, but then also you have a duty and a responsibility to make sure that you're paving the way or making the lives of people who come after you a little bit easier. And so I guess when I think about the last 30 years and all of the work that's been done, I think about all those people who like, you know, like my mum going to have to work out on the railway and, you know, knowing that my dad was called a gin jockey for going out with her. And she was a total fox. Like, fuck them. They're probably just jealous. But like, you know, thinking about all of their struggles, that's what I think of. And, you know, that's sort of what I reflect on in the last 30 years. Like, how much easier my life is than what my mum's life is and hopefully how much easier, you know, my children's life will be than what mine has been and, you know, how much work we have to do. But also, like, you know, stuff is getting better incrementally, I think. I feel like I try to remind people about how recent some of these times were as well, as often as possible. Yeah. You know, I, I just kind of re- reiterate to people that my dad was born on a reserve and his aunties and his mum and his uncles had to have a piece of paper to go into the pub and go into town. And that's my dad. Like, people people think that this is distant, you know, past, but it's not very far away. And I just like to bring that to the fore for everyone as much as possible. <laughs> it's so weird, isn't it? Because when you hear stories like that, it kind of reminds you of, you know, something that would happen like during gold rush times or something weird like that, right? <laughs> but that's just like Burke or Maury or whatever, Warren. like 30 years ago. Yeah. It's crazy. People don't, people don't know that as well, which is the most frustrating thing. I feel like people would be shocked at the fact that people had to have, you know, a piece of paper to be able to go into town just one generation back. Yeah. And... That just frustrates me to no end. I can bring that up to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Go Google certificate of exemption. <laughs> like, yeah. It's insane. When um, oh sorry oh uh, just on like that. My grandfather told me that when he was little um, and they'd be cold. Um, that he would have to go and snuggle up next to a freshly dead kangaroo. Like, how weird is that? That sounds like something that you would see. I think that was in, like, The Revenant or something, that Leonardo DiCaprio movie. And I was like, oh, my gosh, Bob told me about this. But that's my pop. Like, you know, now he lives in, like, a house that's, like, air-conditioned and probably has an electric blanket. Poor old fella. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit and connect with you guys a bit. Um, I've just recently been in Darwin visiting my grandson, and my first grandson and my first grandchild, And I think it's important about how we relate and educate our boys Mm. as well too about their role in the future, so what's behind us. But I came across an interesting statistic on the radio and they said calls that are made to to report domestic violence, something like almost a quarter, 25%, don't actually get answered. And I thought... (sighs) <sighs> how much strength must it take for somebody to make a call mm. and then they're going to sit on a phone for hours mm. and not actually get answered. So, you know, it's, it's, it's happening. It's, it's now. And, yeah. That's so heartbreaking. I remember having to call the police, like, you know, for my mum when we'd be in, like, scary situations. And to think of someone, like, 
being so desperate that they need police intervention and the brutality of that. And, like, you know, as someone who's lived through that and you know how terrifying it is and you sort of have to run out and escape and, you know, you have, like, a limited amount of time to get this done, to think of that just, like, makes me think of, like, just shouting into a, a, a vacuum and there's nothing more desperate or sad or scary than that. I just... I don't even know what to say to that. Well, assuming you can get to a phone. Yeah. For some Aboriginal... I think it just highlights the importance for me, the import, like having someone else to call other than the police. So communities are really innovating in this, developing night patrols so like people can be diverted from these two sources of violence. But also primary prevention, as you've identified, how do we teach our boys, uh, is, is so crucial. Like... Um, I'll share an anecdote. So I used to, I grew up just surrounded by women. My dad was the only man in a all-black women family. Would have been hard. <laughs> um, but, like, I didn't identify as a feminist for a long, long time, which I used to find kind of as a source of shame. But then reflecting on what you've said and thinking about it over the last five years, like, I grew up in a matriarchy where women had absolute power. And that is such a vision that I think white feminists must emulate that we are not just tragic stories for you to look to we're not just lives to better we have the solutions and the solution is matriarchy and it works and it works for men it worked for my father uh, he's a white man and I think he's much better living under <laughs> a household that is undoubtedly matriarchal he is uh, warm he's compassionate he's uh, in touch with his feelings he's gentle he knows how what it takes to sustain a world and to sustain a family uh, and I'm I'm so grateful for it the question is, how do you kind of like transfer that model to everybody? It's it's so difficult, and because of like the lies of colonization that have come through, both of you have identified that you know Aboriginal women are kind of like uh, maybe meant to be in a less public front. Like Aboriginal women held the power in your societies, my societies, uh, and it worked for a very long time. We sustained a society on a continent for so long. Uh, and we sustained it in a way that, I don't know, was ethical and was contingent with the land. Uh, and we can't view these things within isolation. That's a hard project to fund. Hi, we want to put women back on top again. It's not as nice as something like respect women. Like, we're after a fundamental societal change. Um, I... I've been sort of like pondering upon the possibility of something that isn't patriarchy or matriarchy, but sort of like equal terms, like um, an actual, yeah, <laughs> I don't even have a word for it. Um, so, yeah, my question is, um, why do you think um, sort of like... Uh, Matriarchy is is, uh, is the solution, and have you ever thought of something that isn't any one of the two? No. Yeah, Thank sure. Uh, so I can explain what I mean by matriarchy because um, it does kind of sound like women's supremacy, which, like, whatever, it is. But uh, <laughs> uh, when I kind of present this thing, like, matriarchy is not um, about domineering men or, like, domineering I guess, like, sorry, it is not about making men suffer. It's not about switching our places and then making men go through everything that we have had to go through. It's about restructuring the values that we have as a society. So it's like the values that Nadi was talking about, what, you know, makes you a strong woman within your society, um, makes a good society. And men need to learn from that. So we are recentering the values that we have 
and we are recentering the decision makers that we have. So, like, there's a lot of governance studies out there, and I'm not a governance academic, so, like, I'm probably going to butcher them. But, like, you put women in charge, you get less war. You put women in charge, you get more social welfare. You put women in charge, good shit happens. So, um, <laughs> I, I guess as a temporal measure, my vision of matriarchy, I say without an evidence base and just talking out of my ass, um, means putting women in charge until society changes enough to meet the values that we need to sustain itself. I mean, just 200 and something years of having men in charge on this continent has really screwed shit up. Uh, so, maybe it's worth instituting a temporal shift. <laughs> in who does what uh, until, I don't know, things balance out again and we can get those values integrated as they were less than 250 years ago. Well, it still are. Sorry, I should say they still are. And matriarchy, that word whitefella, business, we would have different ways to express that. Women's business, men's business. And the thing about that word that we're using in an Indigenous context... Um, I'm going to say this and see how it feels, is devoid of control. That women in charge of certain things in society is about sharing resources. Not controlling, but it's about um, sharing and staggering the sharing. So that's what I understand matriarchy to look in a Uluroi context. That women talk for things... Uh, not own things. They speak on behalf of um, sharing of resources, um, um, looking after family, uh, singing to country, those things. So in a blackfella way, matriarchy is about the way that you share. And this is another good thing we can chuck into the pot about how we talk about um, feminism in Australia. Can only help, I think. Yeah, it's all like relational, right? It's about relationships, obligation and what you can expect in return, not just about we're in charge now. Yeah. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. I think um, Monica is going to come to the stage, but can we please get a round of applause for these incredible women? If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgee, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and many, many, many more sessions of the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney yet to come. So jump on onto our website and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals. They're a really important part of our writing, reading and living community. 